If you're bored with life, you don't get up every morning with a burning desire to do things. You don't have enough goals. Welcome to Coach to Scale, how modern leaders build coaching cultures. I'm your host, Matt Benelli. Join me as we build a community of like-minded professionals who share the belief that effective coaching improves the performance of every team member. Our mission is to help leaders become better coaches. The Coach to Scale podcast is sponsored by Coachum, the world's first AI coaching execution platform that leverages evidence-based coaching to increase quota attainment. And with that, let's get started. That was Lou Holtz. And today's guest is someone that makes sure that he and his team uh, don't experience that feeling at all. Uh, the next guest, uh, which I'm happy to have a conversation with, is an advisor. He's a teacher. He's a business leader. He's held leadership positions at some amazing companies, HubSpot, Acquia, S&P Capital IQ. Currently, he's chief sales officer at SEMrush and a fellow LP at Stage 2 Capital. Channing Frere, welcome to Coach to Scale. Thank you, Matt. Excited to be here. All right, Channing, excited to have you here. Um, I'm going to launch right into it because you've got uh, a wealth of experience and you come at it from different angles. You've been on the, the RevOps side, you've, you're on the sales leadership side. You look at the business uh, through many different lenses. You're a student of the business. So you must have come across a lot of myths uh, along the way. And this is the myth. We start off with a myth buster question. <laughs> so... Channing, what's a myth in the business of coaching and leading salespeople that you believe is misguided or maybe even complete BS? Yeah. And I do love that show, actually, Mythbusters. It's one of those ones you kind of just can't get enough of, I find. So um, yeah, when, when I think of this, I'll probably take a little bit of a contrarian view to it and we can see how this goes. But um, Perfect. There, there's a, a, myth, a myth or a theory or a, a philosophy, uh, some might even say, around where sales managers should spend their time. And uh, a lot of coaching books out there say, focus on the mid-tier of your, your team. You know, spend time coaching there. Don't spend time on the bottom tier because they're just going to fail. And the top tier are kind of hard to coach. Um, you might be able to make them a little better, spend a little time there, but really focus in on, on that middle tier. And often they talk about it in, uh, in an alphabet grade. You have your A, your B, your C, your D kind of players, which means you know, don't spend time in the D. I think my contrarian view is actually do spend some time on the D. But the reason I think it's so important to spend time on the D is because you need to make decisions with those D groupings. I see way too many uh, sales managers, especially managers that are relatively new to, to the, their role, uh, not making the hard decisions, not um, pushing people in the right direction. And therefore, that D player lingers. And it might not be a metrics-driven uh, performance plan organization, or it might be they're just kind of on the cusp of that metric that, that says they have to uh, be managed out or they don't. And they're kind of dragging down the overall aggregate, but they're still lingering around. You have to spend time figuring out, am I going to get them to be better? Am I going to be able to invest in this person? Or if not, I've got to push them out of the business and go through a PIP and, and the process and so on. But if you don't spend some time there, you can't make that decision and you, you can't either elevate or, or push out maybe. Um, so I do think it's really important actually to spend the time to make those decisions. It's too easy to let people linger and, and struggle a bit and barely get by. Um, they're not happy. You're not happy. You know, it doesn't lead down a, a healthy path overall. So that's a little bit of my, my myth is, is uh, again, 
people say, don't spend time on those D players. I actually say, do spend time, but, but make decisions when you spend that time. D for decision time. Yes. So what I'm taking from that, because I wasn't sure where you're going with it, um, but it, but it's really great because it, it, you know, for me, it was like, wow, I never really thought of it that way, which is, I think is awesome. Uh, the, the opposite of that is to have a D player, i.e. an underperformer who just treads water there is taking up a seat that could be uh, a top performer. And, you know, mm -hmm. oftentimes you don't, you know, you don't win or lose by a lot in this business. You win or lose by a little, you know, you're 98.7% of target. That's not a hundred. And sometimes those C and D players that are just sitting there not being decided upon or coached up um, are the, are the, the key factor. Uh, why, why do too many people ignore those D players when they know that there's a problem? Yeah, there's a couple reasons. One, if we look at it through the lens of tenure as a sales manager, the sales managers that are often, um, and I hate to generalize, but sometimes we need to to, make, to, to understand things. So uh, sales managers that are relatively new in their role, one of the bigger challenges I see they run into is they want to still be friends with their peers. You know, they just moved into this role relatively uh, recently. They were friendly with their peers. Now they still want to maintain that friendship, but then they get to you know have this new responsibility of leadership as well. It's extremely difficult to balance those two things, especially with people who aren't, aren't performing that well. And as a leader, our job is to solve for our peers, solve for the business, not necessarily solve to keep everyone employed you know, on my company or within my company. Because as a sales leader, especially, we have goals, we have targets. That's the thing I love about sales. That's the thing that people hate about sales. But it is the reality. You know, We've all got very metrics-driven numbers that we're going after. And um, Again, as a leader, you have to solve for that. So often, again, those newer leaders, I think, struggle with how do I coach someone out? How do I give the feedback? We need to give, we need to give candid feedback. We need to be um, the radical candor, of course, has, has been very popular in the past few years. We need to be, um, be doing that often and giving that feedback and making sure that people understand what they're doing right, what they're doing wrong. Uh, metrics will give us part of the way there, but the feedback also is super important. So again, be careful of um, being overly uh, friendly, it's, it's obviously great to have friends in work, but it doesn't mean you need to be friends with everyone who's on your team. So I think that's one thing people have to be cautious of. Number two is give feedback regularly, give radical candor feedback, and, and don't wait on that feedback because then people will understand what they need to do differently and then you know, take action, of course, as well. Those are the things that I see leaders sometimes struggling with. And the feedback, is the feedback always... Um, constructive or, or you know, uh, i.e. critical? Is it always like, yeah. hey, you could be doing this better? Or can feedback be positive? Yeah, of course, feedback can be both. Yes. Um, it, it's important to do both. I mean, the other day, for example, I was uh, working with someone and they were a, a, a junior person on the team and, you know, just a quick slack to them saying, hey, great job. You, know, you did a really nice job. And as the head of sales, you know, reaching out to just an individual contributor, it goes a long way sometimes. So those little little notes, obviously, those little nuggets help people a lot. Motivation, yeah, intrinsic motivation is, is uh, the most important thing, I think. And obviously, points of feedback help people a lot through that intrinsic um, motivation. The other thing, though, is the, the critical feedback is important, too. So when I say give feedback, you're right. I mean, we should be giving both types of feedback. Uh, but don't over-index on one. You have to find that balance. Again, if you're being extremely critical, when they do something well, pat them on the back, give them a you know, good job. And conversely, when you give them the positive feedback, make sure you weave in, hey, here's areas you know, to improve. Everyone 
who's ambitious, especially wants to improve. They're looking for you know, ways to improve. And, and as a leader, that's one of the hardest things. Our job is to find that, is to, is to dig through everything that's going on and find the ways that uh, people can improve and then share that feedback with them. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. And I'm a, a parent. I have uh, two children, 22 and 24, and they're both just started their careers. And, you know, they every once in a while they call and they're beaming that their their manager, their boss uh, sends them a slack. Hey, good job. Or or the founder of the company, you know, one of them works at a small company. Yeah, the, the founder of the company sends them a slack and it means a lot. And of course, I'm always saying, what are they not sending you a message on that, you know, that they want you to improve on? And they're like, shut up, dad. But anyway, um, what about you slacking somebody saying, hey, you did a great job, super motivating, especially for uh, people just starting out and getting it from the chief sales officer. What about slacking? Hey, you really need to do this better. Is slack or, you know, that type of medium good for providing constructive feedback? So one of the things that I've I think learned throughout my career, and this has been through some kind of coaching off and on and uh, various leadership uh, discussions and so on. But I think one of the things that I've taken away from all those um, sessions about feedback is I think it's actually very important to um, set the tone of saying, I want to give some feedback. Do you mind if, if, if I give you that now? Just that simple ask sets the tone and saying, okay, I'm going to share some feedback. And is this, is this a good time to share that feedback? And then diving into it. In, in my one-on-ones, I always have a section where I talk about feedback and uh, I keep my notes, my one-on-one notes, and then my feedback notes as well. But I'll ask people and say, you know, do you want to hear some feedback? I have a few points that are relevant. Can we, you know, can we talk about that quickly? Um, they could be little things. And then I'll, you know, they know that, but it's not always some big thing. You did this terrible or that terrible or, or otherwise. Uh, but when I say feedback, it's critical. The positives I don't ask them for. Uh, positives I just I'll just kind of give that more right. real time. It's not hard to give positive feedback. It's the critical feedback that I think it's important to set the tone. That's right. Uh, yeah, every, everybody's open to getting the pat in the back. That that that's yeah. for sure. Um, so <clears throat> this podcast is called Coach to Scale. We talk about coaching and the importance of that. What I've learned over the years is it has many different meanings to different people. What does coaching in in this context mean to you? Yeah. So. Um, I put up a, a post on LinkedIn recently on, on uh, a topic that's relevant here. So the, again, I'll, I'll try to take sometimes a little bit of a, um, a contrarian view or controversial view just to, just to hear the reaction and, and talk about it. And the idea of micromanagement, and I'll come back to the coaching in a second here, but the idea of micromanagement is what I threw out there. And I said, in sales, I actually think it's important to, to quote unquote micromanage. And there was great commentary and reactions in that. Uh, it was interesting. There's a lot of actually positive feedback on that. What I, I realized is the term micromanagement is the thing that throws people off. If we, if we take away that term and we boil it down to what it is, is micromanagement means you're managing to the details, to the minutia. And a good sales leader is doing that, but they're really coaching to the detail. They're looking at someone's email. They're saying, you know what, if you'd worded this dif- differently, maybe in this discovery call, if you'd asked the question differently, if you'd paused a little bit more, you spoke you know, a little bit too much, that's the minutia, that's the details. We need to coach to that details. So I actually think it's micro-coaching, not micromanagement that we need to do as sales leaders. And micro-coaching means finding the minutia and finding the details and helping them to get better, helping the sales rep to get better, but really looking at it through a very granular lens so thus, what is coaching? Coaching is helping someone to perform better. Coaching is, is improving that performance. 
But to do that, often the details count a lot. So micro coaching, I think, is a big piece of an effective coach. Micro coaching, not micromanaging. A huge difference when when we've asked, you know, the last say 10, 11 years, we've asked managers, you know, what, you know, what they, how they want to be perceived, how, what they want to do more of, right. They, they say, I, you know, I want to do more coaching. You know, what do you, you know, what are you afraid of? What don't you want to be? And they, they always say, I don't want to be that micromanager. Right. And so it has right. that, you know, but again, what's the, what does that mean? Um, because exactly. yeah, exactly. It's you, one of those you, terms that gets thrown around a lot. People, like, oh, I don't want to be that. I don't want to be that. It feels bad. But, but in reality, if you get rid of that term, you say, what do you need to do to be successful? You need to coach to the details. So just change, change the labeling of it. And, and my coaching is a different concept all of a sudden. Well, the opposite of it is laissez-faire management, hands off. Hey, you know, do whatever you want. Good luck. Thoughts and prayers. Um, and the, the challenge with that is people seem to managers don't want to be perceived as a micromanager so much that they don't even go near the the precipice and they end up reverting to being more of that hands-off manager without really realizing it. So perhaps looking at it through that lens of micro coaching will help leaders be more assertive in the areas um, that they need to be. So really, really good. Um, love, the, love the way you position that. When we talk about coaching, uh, managers in, in large numbers, large percentages say they, they want to be better at it. They want to do more of it, but they do a fair amount of it. Yet when you talk to the reps, the AEs, the AMs, they in large numbers say they're not being coached really at all. Where's the disconnect? Yeah. So I think, again, the reps that we're probably hearing that feedback from are the reps that want to get better. These are the ambitious reps. They like sales. They're looking to improve. And they're looking at everything they're doing and probably being fairly critical of themselves, even in many cases. And they're looking for that guidance, that micro coaching kind of guidance. Um, managers are managing eight people, maybe upwards of 10 or even 12 in some cases. Uh, that's a lot of people to be micro coaching. It's a lot of people to kind of look at each call and give feedback on each call. Reps want to get better. They want to hit their number. They want to do everything right. And it's often, I think, and what I love about today's world in sales is the transparency. I remember when I grew up in sales, having someone ride along, my manager would have to ride along with me. I mean, physically, we'd go to the customer, they'd be sitting over my shoulder and listening in. That's the only way that you, know, you could get coached. And it was a lot more intense because it wouldn't happen that often. Now that we have this ability of tools like Chorus and Gong, and uh, you know, every email can get read very easily, and there's a lot of AI tools that even help facilitate it, that in, in, um, in large groupings. Wow. It's expected that everything is getting reviewed, and every and you're going to get feedback on every little detail. And again, those those ambitious sales reps want that feedback and and thrive off that feedback. So when they don't get that feedback. They feel like they're missing out on something because someone else might have gotten it. So I think that's probably where it's coming from is uh, no, two things. One, the ambition of, I think, the sales reps today, and then also just the visibility and clarity that, that we all have. You kind of expect and want uh, regular feedback because of it. Yeah. And, and sometimes I think that may be missed where the, the, the culture at the company sometimes is that the top people don't expect to be, quote unquote, coached. In fact, uh, my experience oftentimes is that, you know, when I ask a top performer what type of coaching they receive from their manager, they say, oh, no, 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 I've been, I'm a, 
I'm a vet. You know, I've been here for four or five years. I'm a top performer. Uh, my manager coaches the, you know, basically the new people and the people that are struggling. And, and that tells me that there's a, a problem from a culture perspective in how coaching is, is perceived and defined. What, yeah, what would I, would, I, would agree with, I would definitely agree with that. I think one of the things that um, you know, I look at even at, at SEMrush, where I've been here for a year now, we've, we've rolled out a fair amount of change. And um, and I knew that be coming in. I knew we'd we'd be going through change, and change is hard to handle, hard to deal with. And some people have been, I'd say, very positive on reacting to that that change, and some people have struggled a little, little bit with it. And that's not uncommon. But what I love is when I chat with the folks who are absorbing the change and energized by the change. They, they were top performers, and they're not saying, "Oh, this change is going to stop me." They're saying, "This change is going to get me to that next level." And you know, that's that's the attitude. That's the right way to look at things. Is when um, when you have someone coaching you, when you have someone you know, leading you, and uh, you think you're at a, a certain peak, in reality is there's multiple peaks above that peak that you can still get to. And you just need help to be able to get yourself there. And sometimes you don't have visibility to that next peak until you have a, a coach or a leader who can help guide you in that direction. Well said. Uh, top performers want, want to be led. They, they want to be coached. You mentioned chorus and gong, um, and, you know, you were talking about conversational intelligence tools. Uh, th that's a subset of, of tools. And there's been a proliferation of tools over, let's say the last 10 years, the investment in these tools, um, has been exponential. Um, how has that impacted how you build and lead teams? What's important to think about when it comes to leveraging these tools in terms of what they can do and also what they can't do? Yeah. So I think the first thing is the uh, the tech stack has become so important. I think in sales. You know, when I go back, you know, a long time ago when I first got started, the tech stack was very very simple. It was a CRM, and that was kind of it. Now that tech stack gives so many options and so many things you can do with it that you need to pick and choose. And, and your budget is obviously a big constraint as a sales leader. You only can do so many things. So differentiation of product can be difficult. But picking and choosing that tech stack and then leaning heavily into usage of it. Um, yes, there's differences, and, and we'll just pick on course and gong for a minute. I'm not going to advocate for one or the other, but of course there's some differences between the two. And for various reasons, you might choose one or the other. But once you choose one of those, you've got to lean into using that tool because these are tools that are extremely valuable for sales leaders, for the sales reps, uh, for coaching, for understanding the business and so on. So I think one of the things that I've always found is once I have a tool, it's not just buy the tool, assume everyone's going to use it and step back. As a sales leader, you need, to, you need to lean into that tool. You need to be living in and using that tool. And as I think about our CRM, for example, you know, I'm looking at the deal values in the CRM regularly and then pinging reps saying, why is this you know, set for this value? Why is this date set for this thing? And it's just here and there. I'm just kind of spot checking. But it goes to show that we've got to be using our systems because we can get so much insight from those systems um, that we, we need to be using them effectively. So that's kind of a high level how I think about uh, the tools. Picking and, and choosing, of course, can, can be tricky. I think just, again, the most important thing is pick your, pick your stack and then use that stack very effectively. And when you uh, evaluate bringing a new tool into, uh, into your organization, what are one or two things that go through your mind in terms of, should I do this or not, into your decision criteria? Yeah, so now I'm gonna get all these vendors trying to sell me stuff because this is what they're gonna listen in on, I bet. <laughs> um, <laughs> what I would say is, uh, the first thing is going to be budget. You know, we always have to kind of manage around a budget. I've got a set budget that I need to work within. 
the the nice thing is when I look at my budget, I've got dollars available possibly, but then I also have other tools and kind of replace other tools. So you know, I have to kind of work within a set budget, but it's also inclusive of the products that I have already. And maybe there's replacement opportunities there. The uh, so, so cost is obviously one factor. Um, Cost doesn't drive everything. Value, as, as we sell products, we sell around value, not around cost. And that's the way you know, we should be buying too. So when I look at something, it's what's that incremental value that I'm gonna, I'm gonna see. And it's not me personally, it's gonna be my rep. How can I improve rep efficiency? How can I improve rep time spent? How can I improve frontline manager efficiency, time spent? So that's where I see value, is if I can find a, a easy way to drive incremental um, uh, time spent from a rep on customer work, not time spent on administrative work. You know, I want to shift as much as possible towards that kind of customer facing world. You know, that helps add value for sure. Um, there's lots of other ways to you know, measure value depending on, on the product, but it ultimately comes down to rep productivity. I mean, that's the bottom line. It's, it's hard to put uh, each product impact on rep productivity. It's hard to measure that exactly, but that's the thing I'm looking for and getting comfortable with that improvement in rep productivity. Yeah, um, we've, there's been a lot of talk. There always has been right, about being customer centric, um, you know, looking out, how do we help our customers, et cetera, et cetera. And there's this dynamic going on, a, d- a debate that I see online a lot these days about uh, the efficiency and effectiveness. And what we're just talking about here is all about efficiency and productivity. And, you know, sales reps, sales leaders around the world are applauding and saying, thank you for saying this, Channing. We need our path cleared. And so, like, that's super helpful. But if you're looking at this through the lens of the customer, how do all these tools help us help the customer? What, what do they get out of this? Yeah, so it, it's a great question. And I think the way any uh, customer-facing organization, sales, customer success, um, what have you, yeah, should be operating is, is how do we solve for customer growth? And this was a key message that I brought during our sales kickoff this year is for for us as a business to grow, our customers need to grow. And I think that's the, the constant theme that any, pro, any provider really should be thinking about is we need to solve for a customer thus solving for us. And those two things are tied at the hip. They, they happen, happen in conjunction. So how do we help our customers to grow is the first question. And uh, we need to look at where is our product add value? You know, where are we as individuals adding value to the customer, because often there's a mix of the service and the product that, that people are looking for. Um, but if we can find those areas of opportunity that are helping drive the customer more clearly, that, that, I'm sorry, drive the customer value um, and customer growth more clearly, then that's where we should be spending our time. And that's part of our discovery process, for example. As a sales rep, we should be discovering for how do we help the customer grow, not necessarily discovering for how can we sell them more product. And it's a slight nuance, but I think it's a really important nuance is as we're looking at their pain points and trying to understand them, then we can prescribe solutions. And again, great sales reps understand the pain and, and prescribe, I believe. So um, that prescription should lead down the path of customer growth. Though. Okay. So like, um, I'm, I'm with you hundred percent. I love where you're going with this. Is there an example that comes to mind in terms of uh, a tool that's in the stack at SEMrush that, uh, can obviously help with efficiency and effectiveness on the sales side, but can help also help drive customer growth. You can link it to that. Oh yeah, so a tool that we bought and that we're using. That, yeah, um, let's see. So uh, you know, here's one example. This is this is a very basic, simple example. Um, Perfect. We have uh, we have Salesforce as our CRM, 
uh, and I'm not a I'm not going to advocate or disadvocate for Salesforce because we do have it. Uh, there's pros and cons, but the instance of Salesforce when I first joined was very messy, and to the point where it was barely being used by our our sales team. Um, we had you know, some basic information in there, but everything was really being done out of uh, Google Sheets and and outside of Salesforce. I would say. Um, I couldn't do any reporting. We didn't understand you know, how much even customers were paying. We had to go into a separate system to understand customer pay. So when, when a customer would want to talk to us and say, you know, oh, I'm, I'm using some of SEMrush and I want to buy more of SEMrush, it was really hard for us to understand what are they using? Mm-hmm. What else could we buy? Um, what's their usage trends? All that sort of information it was extremely difficult. So we had to spend a lot of time asking them a ton of questions. And they wouldn't want to spend that time. They'd rather have us go in knowing the answers to all these sorts of questions. Now, if we have a CRM that gives us all that information at our fingertips, we can go in and say, oh, I see you're doing this. I understand you're paying this. I understand you have this history with us. I have an idea for you. Let's talk about this topic because companies like you have a similar problem just like this. And they say, oh, that's actually very relevant. Let's dive into it. So that's just a very simple example. But having that information at your fingertips accelerates the discovery process drastically versus having to obviously you know, start from the beginning and asking questions. Well, you, you put uh, Mark Benioff started with a, uh, you know, he was a little concerned where you're going, but at the end of your comments, there's a smile on his face about how you're leveraging uh, CRM. Uh, so Channing, I, here's a topic. It, 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 it kind of pivots a little bit, but it's still let, think about it through the lens of the customer. Role segmentation. Uh, you know, when you and I first, started in this business, you know, we were the, you know, chief cook and bottle washer of, of our territory. We, you know, we, we, you know, uh, did the uh, BDR, SDR work, the, the AE work and the AM work in, in many cases. Um, now we're, we're super segmented in, in B2B SaaS. It, is it overkill to have so many roles? Because the, the client sometimes says that. And, and I remember that going back to my days at Oracle in the late 90s, uh, early 2000s when Larry was segmenting it. But today it's even much more yeah. stratified. Yeah, it, it's an interesting topic. And I'm, I definitely have a point of view on this one. Um, it depends a little bit sometimes on, I think, the product being sold. But I think what I look at and what I like is if you're selling a product that um, requires a relatively short sales cycle, and that cycle, you know, we, people are moving through that cycle fairly quickly. Um, you can have different touch points that are different people that help someone move through that cycle as long as there's information sharing that's extremely efficient. So as long as that I have a person A can pass the information to person B, and when we interact with our customer, it feels very seamless to the customer. Once again, it goes back to kind of a good CRM and, and other tools. Uh, but if you, if you can do that, you can increase sales efficiency drastically. And then I'll kind of bring this back to the Ford Model T and the assembly line. Uh, in the assembly line, you would have different workers at different stations. And as long as that information was being shared simply, and again, I think the idea of an assembly line is a little simpler than sales, uh, but you can, you can be a much more efficient engine. I believe the same thing for sales. Uh, as again, as long as you can share that information between one person and the other. I think when you get into longer sales cycles, it's very nice to have a point person who can coordinate. And again, that's obviously going to be your your uh, your account executive. The They still might need to bring people in, but they're going to help facilitate that information sharing. The CRM or the other tools you're using, you know, help a bit too. Uh, but I, so my bottom line belief is it's important to have role-specific um, people involved and information sharing, customer information sharing is the key to making that work effectively. And, and 
do you see that? Uh, how do you see that evolving over you know the the near the near future? Because and I'm sure at Semrush, you know, you focus on this. You do a really good job, but at large companies struggle with this and it costs a lot of money to have these resources there. So it's, it's like, wait, it costs a lot of money. Customers are complaining about it. How do we make it better? It doesn't mean you ditch it, but how does it evolve? Is there, do you have a point so, of view on that? Yeah, let, let's, let's get very specific on this actually, because when I look at um, an example of a customer, a customer comes in, they talk to a sales rep, they buy something. So now they have kind of a core product that they purchased. Now they've started using that core product. They're interested in doing something else with us. Uh, they're on our website and they have a question about a feature you know, within the core product where maybe you can buy a small amount of something else. I want them to be able to get that question answered right away. If they go and try to talk to their sales rep and the sales rep might be on a demo, might be busy you know, traveling or something or other, it might take that sales rep 24 hours or more even you know, to get back to them. But when you're in that mode of having interest and wanting to do something and the world we live in today is a world of, of immediacy, um, you don't want to wait 24 hours to get that question answered. Mm. So, so as a, uh, again, a user of this product, let's say, I want to give them chat. I want to give them some way to talk right away. Yeah, text someone, chat with someone, even a phone call if need be. Um, so they can learn more right away. They can make a purchase decision right away, but it doesn't need to flow through that sales rep who's busy today. So when I think of you know multiple roles, that's the scenario where I see multiple roles is and that chat person who gets involved, the person who responds via text who gets involved, you know, has access to what this customer is doing, knows everything about the customer as much as they can, and can respond and educate your way back to them to help them make the decision that they want to make right then. Now, again, they don't want to wait 24 hours to make that simple decision. If the decision is a complex decision, then fine, they're not going to make it that quickly, and they're going to want to talk to the person they, you know, they know um, more deeply, that sales rep, and spend time with that person. But often the decisions are, are simple, lightweight decisions, and that's where, again, multiple roles can, can fit right in. So in the future, I would think of um, this continuing to evolve, where you have the ability to answer people in a very immediate way. But again, you have it's not always the same sales rep talking to the same customer because we can share information, we can leverage AI, we can do things through automation. It might not even be talking to a human. It might be just talking to a chatbot that can help you answer those questions because the chatbot's feeding off of a, a knowledge base and, and your whole CRM. So it knows the answers to things. So that's why I think I could see us going down is again, simple purchasing decisions going through a very much more automated process, complex purchasing decisions will still, I think, default back to the, the sales rep or, uh, or someone who they have a more deep relationship with. I was going to ask you about how uh, AI, uh, what your, your thoughts on that, or how AI is going to impact uh, the sales organization, let's say. Uh, is that where you would go with it? Or would, you know, do you have uh, something different to add? You know, we're hearing all about AI. You're, yeah. you know, we're very close to every, the incubator, everything going on over in Cambridge. What, what do what do we need to know? Yeah, definitely. So, so there's a couple areas where I see AI you know, fitting in nicely in sales. Uh, there's behind the scenes. So if I'm a sales rep and I need to get an answer to a question, traditionally you'd go into your knowledge base or you might Slack, you know, a group Slack channel asking something. Um, but you know, AI can answer that question for you right away. So there's a bunch of tools out there now where you can just ask the question, you're gonna answer right back immediately. So when you're on a demo or on a call with someone, you can get those real-time responses. You don't need a human sitting there, you know, responding to you and trying to kind of filter through who's available to, to get a question answered. So I think there's something as simple as that that can lead into training and other behind the scenes factors 
that can drive um, more efficiency, but it's very much AI driven. So again, that's one piece to it is how do you create a more efficient sales rep through either training, knowledge share, or just information gathering, AI can drive that significantly. The other area where I see it, so I think there's this behind the scenes and then there's customer facing AI. And the customer facing AI is uh, the chat example I was just talking about before or something similar. Whereas if I'm a customer and I wanna buy something, I will learn more about something right now. I think chat, text, you know, those are the two simple approaches, but you don't need a human to be able to respond to those things. Uh, these AI tools are getting very sophisticated and the large learning models that are available um, are driving that sophistication. So they can answer uh, fairly complex questions without human involvement. And again, that can be via text or chat. And again, that resolves around the idea of immediacy. Once again, I think we live in a very much immediacy-driven world. So customers want to buy things quickly and learn quickly, and AI can help facilitate that. Um, thanks, Shannon. What, what do you, when you talk to your top performers, uh, what are they telling you? What, are they, what do you observe them doing and or what are you hearing from them? So I like to do uh, roundtables and I do this with top performers every month. And I'll pick the top 10 performers. Uh, we'll do that in the US and, and over on the international team and sit down and I ask two simple questions. What's working? What's not working? And we have a discussion for an hour about that. And it's just a great way to get a feel for things. So the feedback that I hear from them is the what's working piece we'll start with. I always ask them to start with what's, what's working because very quickly we go down the negative and then we spend you know 55 minutes <laughs> right. on the not working. Um, but again, we always start with the what's working. So we'll hit on a few things. The what's working has usually evolved around, you know, if we're doing change, you know, they're embracing the change. They like it. It's working for them. I'd love to hear that. And it's good to know. Uh, it's often around you know, something new with product that worked well. They really appreciated something new with product. They helped them gain some insight uh, and all. Then, you know, the what's not working is ultimately around one topic of noise. There's too much noise. They say they want to spend time with their customers. They want to spend time selling, but they've got to do all these other things. You know, there's this thing I have to do and that thing is administrative thing and, and so on. How do I reduce the noise so I can focus on what I'm getting paid to do, what I'm good at is talk to customers, be in front of customers. And it's a great question because as, as I talk about certain things, like we need our CRM updated and we need to have you know information sharing and all that thing, from a rep standpoint, sometimes that can feel like noise. So when I talk with them about this, I say, how do we, how do we parse out what's actually noise and you know, it, it real administrative noise that you know, for example, we've got a lot of this in, in SEMrush, every company does. You know, they got to go on a Slack channel and pull certain information out. And, you know, they have to do all these things when the deal gets closed. That, that kind of categorizes noise versus tracking of information. It feels like noise in the moment, but in reality, the long term is, is extremely beneficial. So we have to kind of parse those two things apart to understand the, the slight differences. But I do want to solve for the stuff that truly is noise that I really don't want the sales reps to, to be having to deal with. Yeah, some, sometimes you got to get through the, a little bit of the belly aching to to get to the to what the real noise is. I, I uh, yeah, I'm familiar with that. Uh, a couple of questions on this get together that you have with your top performers: um, is it virtual or or uh, in person? Well, so it depends. Um, it depends. I'll I'll do it either way. I like to go to the offices. Um, you know, once a month I'm visiting one of our offices. So, and, and interestingly, we do have multiple offices, but uh, I'm headquartered in Boston. We only have a smaller sales team in Boston. So I'll go visit our, our office in Dallas or our office over in, in Barcelona or wherever it might be. And when I'm there, I'll try to do it in person. If I'm not 
in travel mode at the time, then we'll do a virtual. But more likely than not, I'll try to mix in at least some element of the team being in person when I do them. Okay, thanks. And the top performer meeting, like it, it, let's just say you're inviting your top performers to this get together. Uh, is this top performer based on results only, or are there any other uh, factors that go into how you're defining that right now? Yeah, so right now I just look at the results. I look at the, the trailing three months. Uh, I keep it simple. The trailing three months of performance. Sometimes I've done the trailing one month. One month you get kind of spikes, of course. You get some people that, sure. that um, might not be a, a legacy top performer. They just have one good month. So I like the last three months. That gives me a good good mix. Uh, it also changes it up a little bit. So when I do the Americas, I'll get different groupings sometimes in there. So I usually look at the last three months. And we run everything monthly at SEMrush. So I look at the business ultimately each month. So I'll look at the trailing three months and we'll we'll get together. Um, and it's metrics driven, just performance based. Curiously, do you see the same folks at the, around the table, so to speak? I do. I do. And yeah. I like that actually. I do. Yeah. And, and I think they like it also, you know, they get one-on-one time with me and some other people don't. So there's, there's part of this that while it's for me, part of it, part of it's for them also to have that chance to tell me what's working, what's not working. And I think they really do appreciate that. Yeah, I interviewed somebody on the podcast not too long ago. And when I was, you know, I've known them for, for many years and now they're uh, promoted into a, uh, you know, a lofty uh, leadership position. And when I knew them, I, I thought they were on the management team. When I looked, they were an individual contributor for the vast majority of the time that we, that we worked together. But they were always at these quarterly top performer events, uh, so, which the managers were there and the top performers. So mm-hmm. uh, it, it was kind of funny. You see the same people a lot, yep. lot yeah. uh, at, the, at those meetings. So uh, Channing, let's talk a little bit about you and where you are today. Uh, you're at SEMrush. For the audience, what does SEMrush do? And uh, you've been there a year and a half. What, what attracted you there? What keeps you there? Yeah, definitely. So uh, at SEMrush, we're an online visibility platform, kind of very simply put. And what we do is we help companies manage their, their online presence, uh, get found, and understand their um, online experience through uh, through SEMrush. So we have a software platform that typically is used by a mix of marketers, and, uh, leadership professionals, even sales professionals will use it. Uh, just keeping an eye on again what's going on in the industry and or what's what's going on within their business. So I joined here as you said a little a little over a year ago, year and a half, and. Um, the thing that got me really interested, I was at HubSpot for a while before this. So I knew the space. HubSpot's in, in you know, the, the marketing kind of marketing space. SEMrush is in the marketing space. Um, and I'd heard of SEMrush before. SEMrush has a very unique data set, number one. We've got um, actually probably the most unique data set when it comes down to keywords across the web. We understand everything that's going on within every keyword, every key phrase that's happened with, with a lot of history tied into it. So having that sort of unique data set is a big differentiator for us. No one else in our space can can uh, call that out. So a company that I was interested in joining, I wanted to have a, a solid product. And again, SEMrush fits that bill perfectly. Great product, very much a product-led business as well. Um, mm-hmm. The thing that that I loved about it is uh, being so product-led, we're, we're not as dependent on sales for our growth all the time. And that's kind of a unique thing for, I think, a sales leader to say, but I, I do love it. I love the idea that, hey, sales is adding a lot of value on top of what the product team's already doing to help drive our business. And it's combined effort for, for revenue. You know, everyone talks about revenue. Everyone thinks about revenue. It's not like sales thinks about revenue and product thinks about product development. We're all collectively thinking about that together, knowing that some of the revenue comes through product-led motion, some of it comes through a sales-led motion. 
Um, so it's, it's been fun. It's been great. And, and it's a very international company. Another thing that I've, uh, I've appreciated over my career is a lot of the international experience that I've had. Uh, it's fun to see the growth opportunities you know, that we've come across outside of the U.S. as much as inside of the U.S. Awesome. Thanks for sharing. Uh, so going to ask you a couple of uh, more rapid fire questions as we, as we move to close out. We talk about coaching. Um, when you think about the word coach, who comes to mind? Like who was your favorite coach or coach that whose aura and persona you respect, even if you don't, I mean, I'm assuming you don't know them personally, but maybe you do. Yeah, yeah definitely. So I'll then on the um, college basketball. I like college basketball a lot. I'm a, a Villanova basketball fan at heart. Um, love Miss Jay the Wright, old Big East. I miss the old yeah. biggies. Yeah. <laughs> I know, I do too. So, but, but John Wooden is the one I'd, I'll throw out there. So I think, you know, I've read a couple of his books. Um, just, I love the way he thinks about coaching. And, you know, he coaches to the detail. He, he doesn't want to overburden people, but he knows the importance of repetition, the importance of just building those uh, basic skills. And those basic skills are the fundamentals that lead to everything else. And I think that's what a good coach needs to do. If you don't have that foundation, uh, as an individual, then uh, you need to work on it. You need to develop that foundation first, and then you can escalate and, and grow you know, from there. And I think that's kind of the core of, of one of John Wooden's teachings amongst many others. Legendary, legendary college basketball coach, uh, UCLA, I believe. Um, you read, with the books that you read, what you, what you think you know about the man, put yourself in the position of playing for him. What is something you think you and your fellow players on that team would never do or say in the presence of John Wooden? Yeah. So I think his mindset is everything's possible. So, you know, I think the, the simple word is I can't is a word that should never be used around him. Um, there's, there's always a path. There's always a way to get something done. And the idea of I can't doesn't exist. It's I can, and here's how I'm going to get there. And here's what I need or the assistance I might need you know, to get there. But uh, I would never say I can't. I think that's the simple thing. And, and I would agree with that 100%. It's, it's, there's always an opportunity and a path. Some paths are much harder than others, but there's always a way to get things done. I interviewed a guy named John Hunter, uh, that podcast will drop uh, pretty soon. And he described the, uh, kind of in, in line with what you're saying, uh, I can't, the opposite of that is I believe. And he talked about, you know, four great words, great coaches use a lot, which is I believe in you. And sometimes that coach believes in their people more than, you know, the people initially at least believe in themselves. And so yep. yeah, I, I kind of love where, where you went with that with John Wooden. Um, can you share, Shannon, can you share an example of a time in your life and that you had coaching that had an impact um, on you personally? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I'll go back to kind of early days when I first got into sales. I, I came out of school, did management consulting. Um, I never thought I wanted to get into sales, actually. What I thought I wanted to do was solve problems. And I thought that's what consultants do. They step into companies and solve problems. Uh, in reality, in management consulting, you're, you're kind of a glorified temp, especially in your early days. So I, I quickly stumbled into a young startup company. I came in as a solution consultant role and then evolved very quickly into sales because what I was good at was asking the questions. I was good at trying to understand discovery, understand what the problems were, and then 
prescribing a solution. And I didn't know I was selling. I just thought that this is kind of the way you do things. Why bother wasting time? Let's understand what the pain and the problems are and then let me help you, you know, resolve those. So I very quickly again just started selling and then they moved me into a sales role. But one of the things that I learned throughout this, um, and the person who taught it to me was Bill Oaken, my, my first manager. He was our head of sales at the time. Um, was at times I didn't know what to do. And I, was, I wasn't sure the next step. I never really thought of myself as a salesperson, didn't really understand much about a sales process or anything else. And I think the most simple thing, and I still pass this on to people, I say, if you don't know what to do, and his, his, he used to be a football player. I, I actually didn't play football growing up, uh, but he used to play football. And he said, in football, what they taught me is, if you don't know what to do, you just go hit someone, go tackle someone. And he's like, sales is the same thing. If you don't know what to do, call someone, just get on the phone with someone. So, you know, any downtime, make sure you're spending it with, with people. And I think it's a very simple concept, but I love it. And I'd still tell, you know, my team's the same thing. If you're not sure what to do, just get on the phones and talk to someone. You know, I, I remember one of my first, uh, like outside sales roles, I was sitting in the cube and my colleague was sitting right next to me and our boss came and said, asked him like, Hey, what are you doing? He's like, well, boss, I'm, uh, I'm reading this annual report and I'm looking at this and I'm looking at that and I'm preparing and, uh, you know, basically I'm getting ready to get ready. And, uh, the boss looks at him and says, Hey, no, you're not. You're, you're, you're aggressively waiting for the phone to ring, pick up the phone. It, there's nothing you're going to say that's stupid enough that's going to make it so that not calling is a better op is a better option. And uh, exactly, just, exactly. I, I, it's too easy to try to over prepare. Just get, we're we're all in sales because we like to talk to people. Get on the phone and talk with someone. I mean, it, it's the most simple thing. It goes back to I think the fundamental basics of sales, but it still applies today. So I love it. Hit someone. Call means call yeah. someone. All right. So uh, Channing, as we're closing out, any any advice? Uh, for the audience, and I'm going to be specific. Any advice for that that man or, or woman who is just promoted to management for the first time? They may not be getting the the training and the coaching. They may not be, you know, the, have the handbook on how to do this. What's your advice to that individual? Yeah. So I think the thing that I would say to them, and this is a, a talk I've given in the past as well, but we'll we'll synthesize this into like 30 seconds, is um. It's important as, a, as an early leader, especially, to understand where your allegiances lie. And those allegiances are with your peers and your, your manager. Um, your team isn't the team that reports to you. Your team is your peers. And that's the simple concept is that's often overlooked. People think of, they say, who's your team? They say, oh, it's, it's you know, Joe and Sally and Sam, the people that report to me. No, your team are your peers. And you need to solve for your peers and you need to solve for your manager first. The people underneath you are the people that are going to help facilitate that, but you're not always solving for those individuals. Now, that seems a little bit cruel at times, but it's, it's the reality of we need to help solve for the bigger organization. To do that as a leader, our job is to solve around our peers and the challenges and problems that our peers have and the asks that our peers have um, and or our manager has from us. And uh, once you begin to think about things through that lens, it really helps you as a leader to elevate and, and escalate um, what you should be working on and doing. Well, certainly something for folks to chew on there. And I think that's a really great place to leave it. Uh, Channing, we covered a lot of ground today. You know, we talked about um, a micromanager and why that's good, not just all bad. We talked about why you should spend time with your C and D players and not just ignore them and let them float out there. We talked about sales as an assembly line and making it seamless for the customer. Uh, the difference between uh, I can versus I can't. And then 
hitting someone, i.e. calling someone, reaching out, yep. having conversations. So uh, thanks a lot for, for doing that. Really appreciate you investing time with us today. Definitely, Matt. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And this was fun. All right. And for everybody out there, thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Like, let, hit, let us know what you like. Uh, let us know what you don't like. Hit the like button, comment, engage with your peers online. That's what makes it fun. And people learn and take a lot from it. If you want something specific, let us know what that is. We want to bring content that's interesting, that's actionable, um, and that's timely. So uh, engage in uh, any on any medium that you see fit. And until next time, coach them if you want to keep them. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Coach to Scale, How Modern Leaders Build Coaching Cultures. For show notes and other episodes, visit us at coachem.io. That's C-O-A-C-H-E-M dot I-O. And follow us on Twitter at Coachem Now. See you all next week. Thanks for joining. And remember, coach them if you want to keep them. <laughs>